Happy Pride Month from the Nerd By Word. Today we'll spend some time chatting about our favorite characters from the LGBTQ community. So buckle up, Buttercup, because the By Word begins now. Greetings and salutations once more. Welcome in to the Nerd by Word podcast, the podcast that has become what you made it, Obi-Wan. I'm Chris here with my best friend and co-host Dave, and together we are your guides to the Nerdverse. Today we are setting aside a special episode in our Byword Big Talk to celebrate our favorite LGBTQ characters in celebration of Pride Month. But first, it's time for... Dave, what's on the web today? Ah, oh, I see what you did there. Uh, so let's go ahead and talk about Spider-Man for a second. Not the character, uh, but the video game, the Spider-Man PS4 exclusive that was recently re-released as a PS5 remaster. Um, you know, it's it's fun to uh, find tweets that have you know, aged really badly. Here's a tweet from June 28th, 2017, when Insomniac Games, the developer of the Spider-Man game tweeted that the game, quote, will never appear on Xbox or PC. It's a permanent PS4 exclusive publisher by Sony Interactive Entertainment. Uh, so, yeah, the reason that particular tweet aged badly is because it was announced just a couple of days ago that Spider-Man, the former permanent PS4 exclusive, will be coming to PC in August. Um, and its follow-up, Miles Morales, will be joining it soon thereafter. Now, this is actually part of a larger trend. We have slowly started seeing uh, Sony-exclusively developed games making their way to PC. Uh, Days Gone, um, Horizon Zero Dawn, um, the most recent God of War reboot, all have already made their way. Uh, to PC. So there seems to be um, kind of a, a signal from Sony that they're going to lean into um, moving some of their exclusive to PC uh, two, three, maybe four years after uh, they have ringed all the money from console exclusivity. Now, this is great news for people who are really into these sorts of exclusives and want to play them, but don't want to have to shell out for every system. I have a fairly decent uh, gaming PC sitting here that still runs pretty darn well and everything that I've been throwing at it. So between my Xbox with Game Pass and my PC, where I get copious amounts of free games from the Epic Game Store, uh, I'm feeling pretty good about being able to perhaps pick up some of these Sony exclusives in the future on PC rather than having to shell out for an Xbox and a PlayStation and a gaming PC. Um, and I don't mind you know, waiting a couple of extra years. Uh, that just means that I'm getting all the DLC, I'm getting all the improvements, all the patches, all the problems are ironed out. Um, I don't mind you know, giving it a little time to, uh, to get polished. So I think this is overall really, really good news 
uh, for gamers everywhere. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, this is crazy. I've never really been a PC gamer. I've never, <clears throat> I usually have like the school computer that I use or my personal laptop is something that I just use to record this podcast on or something like that. So it's not really like up to snuff when it comes to, to gaming requirements. So I've never been really a PC gamer, but like this, giving that option to folks who, to, who do dabble in that is really fascinating. And I'm still in shock that my nerd commendation from a few weeks ago is a thing because Sony interactive studios um, has had like a, for all intents and purposes, a monopoly. Yes, they've made like RBI baseball, but those are silly, like arcade style games. But like MLB The Show being available on like day one for Xbox Game Pass, and you still load up the game on your Xbox with the Sony Interactive logo and everything when you're loading it up. It's absolutely crazy to me. So I, I'm glad that they're kind of shifting in this. Um, I'm, I'm, probably not going to go out and get a gaming pc or anything like that but like the more opportunities for folks to play these games is is exciting yeah yeah i'm i'm really i'm really excited to uh, to lay into this one i'm you know given the fact that i have a gaming pc already um, and I don't want to go and shell out 500 bucks for the uh, impossible to find Sony PS5 right now. Um, I'm maintaining some hope that within the next year or two, I might be able to pick up um, Horizon Forbidden West for PC and play that game that way because Horizon uh, Zero Dawn was like my favorite game of the last generation. So I'm just really, I'm really psyched to play that game. Um, and, you know, shelling out 60 bucks for a PC game versus 500 bucks for a console plus. 60 or 70 bucks for the game sounds pretty good to me yeah for sure all right chris we're talking star wars what you got last week we briefly discussed the andor trailer that was revealed at star wars celebration in anaheim but there were a lot more reveals that took place that i promised to cover this week uh so here are a quick few bullet points we got a surprise trailer for jedi survivor the sequel to 2019's jedi fallen order which will follow the further adventures of cal kestis and more importantly bd1 <clears throat> releasing exclusively on the next generation console sometime next year so i may have to upgrade here pretty soon dave uh, a second season of The Bad Batch was confirmed to be in the works. Uh, personally, I have really struggled to get into The Bad Batch, um, but uh, I'm, I'm willing to give it another shot. A new animated series of shorts, Tales of the Jedi, was revealed, which teased tales of the younger years of Ahsoka Tano and a character that we've wanted more depth from, Count Dooku. Uh, now that we've got that business out of the way, on to the important stuff. A teaser for the upcoming Ahsoka series was shown to those in attendance. While the footage has yet to be released to the general public and the powers that be are doing a great job of sniping any leaked footage. Is that Star Wars Rebels music I hear? Chopper himself made an appearance on stage with star Rosario Dawson. Natasha Liu Bordiso will play the baddie herself, Sabine Wren. Leaked images confirmed a live action of my beloved space wife, Captain Harrison Dula. I will never stop singing the praises of Star Wars Rebels. While Clone Wars deservedly gets a lot of love, Rebels, in my opinion, truly captures the spirit of what made me fall in love with Star Wars as an idea at its core. The two-part finale of the second season, Twilight of the Apprentice, is right up there with the original trilogy in terms of quality, hard-hitting content. The showdown between Ahsoka and Anakin is simply chef's kiss. 
The show then goes on to be some of the most imaginative and creative storytelling in any franchise, not just Star Wars. While some cinematic entries are incredibly reductive, Rebels really goes for it. Contemplations on what the Force means and what it can do will make your head spin. Centering the story around uh, around one found family guarantees a satisfying and incredible journey. Also, Dave, as a super fan of Heir to the Empire, Grand Admiral Thrawn is the primary protagonist or uh, antagonist, excuse me, throughout the series. Just go watch Rebels. It's my nerd commendation of all nerd commendations. Sorry, I'm having a moment here. I'm getting emotional. I love Star Wars Rebels, and we're getting it in live action. I'm over the moon for this. Yeah, so I watched a chunk of the first season of, of Rebels, I believe. I believe it was a good chunk of the first season. And I really liked what I saw and then, you know, kind of got sidetracked. Um, so I'm definitely going to have to dive back into this if, you know, it's going to play that big of a role in the Ahsoka series, which I am pretty darn hyped for. So I, I'm all about this, man. I wish they would release, you know, this teaser so we can kind of get a get a look at this. You know, this is always hate when they show footage at some celebration and then they don't actually release it online. You know, what well, who who are we, the poor peons who don't get to actually go to something like that yeah. and, you know, see 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 the you know trailer in action. Oh my goodness. Uh so yeah I'm I'm really really psyched for this. Um Bad Batch, I never even tried to watch the 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 premise just doesn't appeal to me that much, I guess. Um I'll eventually give it a shot when I have nothing better to, you know, watch while I'm working out in the mornings or something. Um, so, and you know, Jedi Fallen Order was interesting too because I played the game a little and then got sidetracked with something else. I liked, you know, the the basics of it pretty well, um, but I never really quite got around to finishing it. So something about it must have not quite captivated me all the way. A good. You know, it's it's got great reviews and it seems to be a good Star Wars game overall, uh, which is exactly what we need because God knows we've gotten several bad Star Wars mm-hmm. games. I'm looking at EA's Battlefront crap. Um, yeah, it was that was a mess. So you know, more good Star Wars games. That that's absolutely uh, great news. So yeah, I, I think you know there's a lot to be excited about about the future of Star Wars right now, man. And I'm really really excited because. Um... We we had our reservations uh, a couple of weeks ago with that Vanity Fair article and Kathleen Kennedy. I'm not going to spoil anything about Kenobi, but that seemed like a very much a red herring thing. And 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 kudos to you, Kathleen Kennedy, for making us believe it because um, I'm really excited. Um, I without giving anything away, the first three episodes of Kenobi have been absolutely spectacular. I can't wait to talk about them in depth on the show. Um, I, I'm absolutely excited uh, for the future of Star Wars going forward. And that is in no, uh, you know, this news in particular has me geeked about, about where we're headed. Just please, no more deep, no more deep fake, Luke. Please, no more, no more, no more. Please, no more. Well, I will say that I think, I think the, what you see in Kenobi, and we really need to, we're going to have to have a Kenobi postmortem or something. Um, but I think what we see in Kenobi falls under a different category than what Kathleen Kennedy was talking about. I don't think that's necessarily a red herring. I think it's a very specific kind of scenario that she was talking about. In short, I don't think we're going to get, for example, a recasting of Luke Skywalker um, for for further adventures or something like that. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that's definitely interesting, and I cannot wait to have that episode. And I think we only have three more. Where where it's a six issue, or excuse me, six issue. I've been reading a lot of comics. A six episode limited series. Um, we've only got three more. We're halfway done with it. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I need to I need to get caught up too. I only watched the first two so far. I'm really oh, looking forward to episode three. One, the third one. Oh my goodness. All right, that wraps up nerd news. Uh, before I completely burst at the seams here, when we come back, we're going to be celebrating and standing in allyship with our favorite characters from the LGBTQ community in our Byword Big Talk. All right, welcome back to this week's Byword. And our regularly scheduled big talk of our summer reading assignments for each other is going to be postponed to next week because it's Pride Month. And in true allyship, we wanted to spend some time to feature some of our favorite queer characters, uh, both from comics or what have you. I think specifically we, we pretty much stuck to comics here, but there are lots of out there in, in all of the fandom universe. Um, so if you are looking forward to that summer reading, be sure to read All-Star Superman by Grant Morrison and um, Al Ewing's Guardians of the Galaxy from 2019. So that will be next week if you want to follow along with us. But first, um, this week, as previously mentioned, we are featuring our favorite LGBTQ characters in comics. And if there's someone uh, in the larger universe that you want to feature, please be sure to let us know on social media at NerdByWord on Twitter and Instagram. But as always in our format, we've got three apiece that we want to show some love to. And Dave, you called dibs as soon as I posited this idea, and I begrudgingly have given you dibs. And 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 dibs have been called, and we must respect the dibs. Um, is there a better DC character right now than Sojourner Joe Mullen, a member of the Green Lantern Corps? No, I don't think there is. I, I feel like I have talked about the book in which she premiered, Far Sector, probably Far Sector too often. Um, but it is by far one of my all-time favorite books to come out of DC. It is so, so good from top to bottom. Um, so uh, the character, of course, was created by N.K. Jemison and Jamal Campbell, for the 12-issue maxi-series Far Sector, which was published under the Young Animal DC imprint. Uh, Joe is a um, former, uh, let me see if I get this right, a former police officer who uh, got disillusioned with her job, eventually is offered an experimental Green Lantern ring, and is posted in a sector so far on the edges of space that it hasn't even been numbered yet by the guardians uh, of OSO. Uh, She's kind of stuck on her own uh, without any sort of support and has to uh, solve a major mystery. Um, She is tough, smart, uh, funny. She is all the kind of things that you want out of a character like this. On top of that, she's deeply compassionate, has a great moral center. Um, She's just absolutely fantastic. Yeah, um, and I will throw in there, she's former military as well. Um, and That's right, that's right. And, and really, um, I would really be interested, Dave, to have a complete episode where we kind of followed up on each other's nerd commendations, because this is one of your very early picks that I took to heart, and I have fallen head over heels in love with both the book, the creative team, uh, and the character as well. So I, I love everything about Joe, um, and she is 
right there in that 12 issue series confirmed to be bisexual. Um, and, and just really at the forefront um, with some forward momentum with what DC's doing. And I absolutely love it. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, you'd be hard pressed to find a better creative team in comics. The combo of NK Jemison's biting like social commentary and like how that is so relevant and now in today's climate. And then what, what else can you say about Jamal Campbell's art? I mean, like it is an absolute like feast for the eyes. Like it's some of the most beautiful stuff you'll ever see. It's so imaginative and so realistic and yet like super hardcore sci-fi. Like I absolutely love it. And it was an absolute joy. I took forever to read it, those 12 issues, because I didn't want it to end. And I absolutely love it. Love the character. Love everything about it. Yeah. Yeah. Far Sector is absolutely the best. All right, Chris, let's talk about your first character. Uh, shockingly enough, a DC character. Well, listen, this should be no surprise if you've paid any attention to my rantings and ravings of the past few months. Um, but our dear friend, Stephanie Williams, has, alongside Vida Ayala and Aletha Martinez and the entire creative team over there at DC, has completely revamped an undersung hero in Nubia, who is now queen of the Amazons, has her own miniseries going again. Steph is writing solo. I'm so excited for her and this character who has been criminally underrepresented in, in comics as a whole. And just watching this entire journey of Nubia going from the Guardian of Doom's doorway for so long, um, seeing her past lives uh, come into play, and then going through Trial of the Amazons and her being at the forefront and at the center of the first Wonder Woman, uh, Wonder Family, if you will, crossover in decades at DC. You know, as we previously commented, probably for the best case scenario after Amazon's attack. But for it to come back in full force with Nubi at the center, that's huge and that's exciting and it's amazing. Um, right alongside our girl, Yara Floor, whom we adore. Um, and then, you know, for Nubia to have her wonderful coronation special, and then now leading into this next miniseries, Queen of the Amazons, um, she is, I, I'm not sure if she's uh, confirmed to be bisexual or whatever, but she is in a lesbian relationship with, um, I believe it's Io, and I just love so much about this character, and, like, just seeing, like, all of this development um, out of in a completely new direction for DC and hopefully she alongside Joe is kind of like these, like the people who are holding um, ground going forward and, and continue to be like a main staple in DC. Yeah. I freely admit that I'm still a little bit behind on a lot of the Nubia developments. Um, I've been, you know, reading a lot of other things and I have to circle back around to that. Um, but you know, I'm I'm so pleased that this character, which has been, you know, kind of stuck in obscurity for so many years, is kind of getting finally uh, a time to shine and a time in the spotlight. Uh, Nubia is has always been sort of a story of missed opportunities and 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 wasted potential, and so seeing you know Nubia kind of you know, come out of nowhere and really like take a prominent place in in the DC stories is absolutely fantastic and i can't wait to you know kind of pitch back and and really go through all of that you know without having to read it month for month necessarily uh because i hate the waiting time i love to binge so i'm going to binge that that first mini series on the coronation coronation special as soon as i can 
All right, Dave. No, you are exclusively DC. Go figure with your list. Um, but uh, this is a character that I have a little bit of experience with, uh, thanks to Rosie Perez. Well, you should have actually a little bit more experience with her than just that because of the origin of this character. Uh, we're talking about uh, Renee Montoya, uh, a character from the uh, the Batman comic books originally. Actually, the origin point of this character, much like Harley Quinn, is the Batman animated series. Um, Renee Montoya was created by Paul Dini, Bruce Tim, and Mitch Bryan for the Batman animated series. Um, and then very soon after... Um, made her way into the comic books as of Batman number 475, uh, which was released in March of 1992. Uh, she started out as a, a cop uh, uh, in the Gotham City Police Department. Uh, she was partnered with Harvey Bullock for a, a while um, and uh, had to go through a, a whole bunch of, of interesting events, including Nightfall, Batman Nightfall, uh, no Man's Land, where you know an earthquake uh, destroyed a huge part of Gotham City, and things kind of went a little crazy for a while. And then she was one of the main characters in what I still argue is one of the best books ever produced by DC, and that is Gotham Central. Um, she was absolutely fantastic in that series. Um, and then we get uh, to you know sort of the the, the fifty two. Uh, and, you know, the one year later stories. And that's when you get her leaving the uh, police department um, and trying to find a new purpose. And she meets up with the question and eventually becomes sort of the question's successor, um, which is uh, absolutely fantastic. The character has had such a journey. She reminds me in a lot of ways uh, of somebody like... Um, Dick Grayson in the Batman comic books, somebody who has had the opportunity to grow and to develop and, you know, isn't just kind of reset um, every five minutes. Uh, and, and that makes her such a rich and fascinating character. Um, her most notable relationship was actually with a Batwoman, Kate Kane, a uh, very um, tragic relationship. They, they could never quite make it work, it seemed. But at the same time, um, She's just such a fantastic character. Even when she like, you know, puts on her own version of the question outfit, you know, the the fedora and the the mask that kind of, you know, makes you look like you have no face and all that. She has like more style than the original question by a landslide. <laughs> she is she's just like she oozes style. She's tough as nails. She's absolutely no nonsense. And and I wish they would bring this version of the question back because, of course, once again, we had our new 52 that wiped all of this cool stuff away. And then we've had a rebirth. And since then, as far as I know, uh, this version of the question has not made a new appearance. And, and let me tell you, it is such a missed opportunity. She is one of the best characters to come out of the Batman comic books. And that's saying a lot. Um, I would love to see her in action as the question again any day of the week. Yeah, this has all the recipes of of uh, something that I would love. I mean, you have a Latinx character, you have a hard nosed detective. This seems like it's right up my alley and something I did. I definitely need to dive into. And and I'm making the most of that DC Universe Infinite. I got that flash sale for the yearly subscription. I'm telling you what, I'm reading a heck of a lot more DC than I ever have. 
Oh yeah, and I will. I'll tell you, like, if you want to read some really wild stuff that actually features um, Rene Montoya, the, the starting point should be probably Gotham Central, which is such a good book. Um, and then uh, I would definitely read Fifty Two, which has a whole bunch of different like story strands. Uh, it's kind of like a uh, a jam session with some of the best writers in the business. Um, in, including, you know, Greg Rucka, Grant Morrison, and and more. I mean, it's just a great, great fifty-two issue story. Uh, and and one part of this jam session is sort of her journey towards becoming the question. Um, I, w- I would say those two things highly recommended if you're interested in in Renee Montoya. She's just such a such a great character. All right, Chris, I did not not expect you to talk about a Spider-Man adjacent character. So let's go ahead and do that. Listen, this is one of the latest reveals and um, it was revealed both in the um, Marvel Voices Pride um, number one last year and in her subsequent uh, run by Jed McKay, which I cannot nerd commend enough, that Felicia Hardy, the black cat, is indeed bisexual. In addition to her flings on again, off again with Peter Parker and others, uh, other male characters in the Marvel universe. She also has some girlfriends in her past and or present. So um, one of those is being uh, Odessa herself, the queen of the, the thieves guild. And I, I just love so much about Felicia. She is, probably my end game for Peter and um, one of my favorite characters in all of comics. So, um, you know, a lot of people would, you know, uh, p- uh, from an ignorant background would say, why are you doing this? Why is this a retcon? Da, 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 da. But like, if you've ever like touched grass, as we say, or experienced the real world, like everything changes, like as you grow and, so this is like a natural evolution for the character. And if you're surprised by Felicia Hardy being bisexual, then you've probably never read the character because the signs have been there for, for quite some time. Um, so I, I love Felicia as a character and, you know, seeing her as like a proud member of the LGBTQ community is, is such a great revelation. Um, and I'm, I'm excited for more of her. I think we have the iron cat series coming up. I think that's going to be written by McKay as well, who has such a great grasp of the character. Um, and, uh, I'm just excited to read more about her. Yeah. So, uh, I'm, I'm actually really interested in, in this whole development and I've, I think it's happening in what a current black cat series or something, which I've, you know, desperately need to read because I've not been reading it um i find this fascinating i always liked the black cat character i don't for me she's definitely not peter endgame um that's mj to me forevermore but i will i will say that i always like those two's relationship uh that 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 playfulness that happens between them and that that cool banter um so i'm a big big fan of the character um I just I need to dive into this new series apparently because I'd love to know more. I, I will say um, just an addendum here. Um, probably my favorite single issue that I read in the past year was that um, what was it? The giant size or uh, Black Cat and Mary Jane that was written by McKay. I love that issue. That was probably my favorite single issue. I'm right there with you, man. That was absolutely uproarious. I still think that the uh, the Aunt May Doc Ock uh, oh, issue yeah. might might edge it out just slightly, but yeah. 
All right, speaking of recent revelations, you've got one as well, Dave, as your third and final character. I do, and I think this one bears talking about because it's such a fantastic character. Uh, So recently it was revealed that Tim Drake, uh, the third Robin, uh, is bisexual. And I cannot speak highly enough of Tim Drake as a character. He is... uh, my Robin, I guess is the best way to put it. I'm a huge fan of uh, the Dick Grayson character. I uh, freely admit that, and I've said that many times. But for most of my uh, years of reading comic books, <clears throat> Dick has been Nightwing. And so for me, uh, Dick Grayson will always work best as the uh, sidekick that's grown up and moved on and, and built something for himself. And I love the character for that. But when I think of Robin as a character, I think of Tim Drake. Um, he was uh, created by Marv Wolfman uh, and Pat Broderick. And what kind of you know pedigree is that? You know, when your character is co-created by Marv Wolfman, uh, first appeared in Batman four thirty six in August of nineteen eighty nine. Um, sort of uh, post death of Jason Todd, uh, he was sort of the the character that was trying to uh, make a case that Batman needs a Robin, that he goes too dark without that balance, and that Batman has been going off the deep end since Jason Todd died, and then takes the mantle for himself as a sort of not a, um, oh, this is going to be really cool to be Robin, but more of a this is my duty because nobody else will do this. Um, and for that, the character always seems to be very much Um, a counterbalance to Bruce Wayne. At the same time, he also follows uh, Batman in some areas that Robins traditionally haven't. Um, You know, Jason Todd and Dick Grayson both were, you know, the fighters, the acrobats, all that. But Tim Drake is the cerebral Robin. Now, he can fight, but he is he he's smart. He's one of the smartest detectives. He's right up there with Batman. He he learns from the best, and he he takes those you know think those skills and he runs with them, which makes him in my book the the you know the superior Robin. Um, he's had a very long history. Uh, obviously, since the eighties, he was around for some of the biggest stories in Batman history. We're talking about you know Nightfall, uh, Prodigal, Contagion. He was there for Final Night. He was part of No Man's Land. Um, And of course, he also has had the opportunity to have other um, scenarios kind of put a stamp on him as a character. So for example, he was part of, you know, this incredibly humorous and cool uh, Young Justice team, the original Young Justice, not not the cartoon, which is very different from from the comic (laughs) book, Um, which was, I believe, written by Peter David. Um, and then he was—he uh, kind of became part of his own version of the Teen Titans uh, under Jeff Johns. Uh, say what you will about the guy. Uh, his Teen Titans book was very, very good. Um, and he had a very cool grasp of Tim Drake as a character and his relationship in particular with uh, Connor Kent, Superboy. They have a really, really cool little friendship going on. Um, you know, he was there for Infinite Crisis, and one year later, uh, he even uh, changed his identity for a little while and went as Red Robin uh, with a uh, outfit that was sort of inspired by a, a Kingdom Come design uh, by Alex Ross, which is super cool too. He's just you know a very very versatile character that works in a lot of different places. Um, much much smarter than the average Robin, let me put it that way, um, and uh, and just 
just a superb character. Um, and any time that Tim Drake features, I will be there to read. He's just a great, great character, man. It's really interesting um, to hear you say all these things too, because it feels like Tim Drake um, kind of gets swept under the radar with 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 some of the other Robins. Uh, you, you of course have you know Dick Grayson as as the first and Nightwing and all all of the hoopla surrounded around that. You have Jason Todd being the Red Hood and the angsty you know vengeful filled character, and then my personal favorite, you have. Um, Damien Wayne, you know, and just everything that entails. I'm always a sucker for a, um, a character of two worlds. And then the, you know, the duality of his heritage and his upbringing is always interesting to me. And then, you know, here lies Tim Drake, you know, and, and, and you know, it's kind of taken for granted in a sense. And I'm not near as um, up to speed on Batman comics as I'd like to be, but it's definitely someone that I, I need to read more up on. And I think the problem is, too, that a lot of the um, DC loves legacy, um, but they also like to try to keep their characters around. So, you know, you have you have Dick Grayson become Nightwing and then you get a new Robin, you know, you have Jason Todd dying, you get a new Robin, you know, um, but then we have Damian Wayne become Robin and DC had no idea what to do with Tim Drake. And so they didn't give him a natural evolution like a lot of these other characters have gotten, which is a huge mistake. I'm seeing something similar happening with uh, Superboy, uh, Connor Kent, who's such a cool character in the comics. But since they, you know, since Bendis decided to age up Jonathan Kent, um, you know, the son of uh, Clark Kent and Lois Lane, and now he's like, what, 17 years old, suddenly, you know, teenage edgy Superboy doesn't have a place anymore. Um and I think that's a problem. I, you know, I'm all about new characters and legacies, but you have to also think about what you're going to do with these other characters that have been here. How are you going to evolve them? How are you going to further their story? So I think that whole generation of characters that, you know, my generation, I guess, um, kids who read predominantly like in the 90s um, are really, really attached to you know tim drake superboy basically the young justice crew you know you also have now a new new wonder girl with yara floor who's absolutely fantastic but whatever happened to cassandra sandsmark you know like where is she at now you know she she does a great she does a great job in trial of the amazons i forgot to say that in my nerd commendation she plays she basically plays the role of detective in that in that whodunit murder and she was fantastic in that series and I'm glad she's getting a spotlight because there for a hot second, it seemed like she had just vanished off the face of the earth, you know? So that, that whole generation of characters, you know, um, impulse is another one, like whatever happened to impulse, you know, whatever happened to Arrowette, you know, there's all these characters that are really, really cool, um, that have been kind of superseded by a new generation of characters without a clear plan of what to do with them. And I think Tim Drake, regrettably, is one of those characters that keeps falling through the cracks. And to me, he, you know, as much as I love Damien Wayne as a character, to me, Tim Drake is still the definite Robin. Um, so I, I, I want Damien Wayne to stay around forever. But maybe not as Robin, man. Maybe it's just time for Tim Drake to take that role back and for Damien to do something different. Because as much as I like Damien Wayne as a character, he's never quite been the quintessential Robin that, that Tim Drake was. And, you know... I'm going to continue that ramble for a second. I think a function of that is too, that Grant Morrison created Damian Wayne as a character uh, to be the counterbalance, not to Bruce Wayne, Batman, but a, the counterbalance to Dick Grayson, Batman. 
and like Dick Grayson was Batman, he was a much more lighthearted Batman. So you needed this this edgy, grim, snarky Robin with him. You know that it was a role reversal that was really really cool at the time. But then you know they brought Bruce Wayne back, and and Dick went back to being Nightwing, and now suddenly you have a Bruce Wayne and a Batman and a Robin and they're both just grim and then it just the, the dynamic doesn't work to me at least yeah that makes sense all right so we have one more uh character that we need to talk about here and I should not be surprised that you stay on brand and bring in an X-Men character <laughs> last but not least um and this is a recent development too because for large swaths of this character's backstory I haven't really been interested but it's been really the the Krakoa era um you know that has really had, kind of had a, a revolution of this character and revamping them and making them a, a good deal more interesting to me. But um, my third and final pick is Dokken Akihiro, uh, the son of Wolverine, Logan, um, who is bisexual. And um, really, uh, particularly under Leah Williams's X Factor and now in Marauders by Steve Orlando, um, has really gone through a really interesting revamp as a character um, really more uh, in depth of like his inspirations and his feelings and you know kind of that legacy of of being the child of such uh, such a, a character with such like a large standing and um, you know it's really really interesting to see him deal with his power set which is pheromone based which is which is kind of interesting but can be a sticky situation um and to see him really get some some depth, uh, uh, and and be like a a detective in the X Factor role, and now like this swashbuckling team of marauders, and um, you know he who has a a checkered past. Um, but I think one of the greatest advents of the Krakoa era is in in the age in which you don't have to resort to uh, quote unquote villain tactics or whatever simply to survive and you're given a real second chance to to live the life um that you would like um it, it's really fascinating to see him develop as a character and not have to resort to oh he's the bad guy uh and, and i'm really excited to see the trajectory of this character going forward yeah i know absolutely uh next to nothing about all of the children slash clones of wolverine it seems like uh he's got quite a cadre of characters <laughs> around him i know there's like the 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 second wolverine right laura kinney mm-hmm. there's the, the the honey badger character which every time i see a panel of that character i, I have to laugh my butt Gabby. off gabby's the greatest the best i love her then there's this character. Are there are there more? Like, does he have more than three? Like, it seems yeah, like he has a there ton of is, kids. Um, there was one in the dark ages of X Men. You know, after spinning out of the events of Inhumans versus X Men, where we, I think it was X Men Blue. We had Jimmy Hudson. I think was his name. Was a son of his. Isn't he from the Ultimate Universe? Uh not sure. But I mean, like Logan gives me a run for my money when it comes to progeny. So, ooh, now that's saying something. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you are a prolific man, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm interested in learning more about this character. It seems like a lot of um, 
from the little exposure I've had, a lot of Logan's kids are more interesting than Logan. So um, if this holds true, then I'm sure this character is going to be pretty darn interesting. Yeah. And um, it's really interesting too. I, I, you know, just said it, um, you know, like being a a man or a character or a person of two worlds, um, you know, being, you know, a biracial being uh, Asian in addition to, you know, Logan's white, background canadian background so that that always plays um his mother itsu who was who was uh, logan's wife at the time uh so he's half japanese and that's that always plays a fascinating part of it too yeah i'm I'm here for this one all right that wraps up our byword big talk for this week who are your favorite lgbtq characters across the fandoms uh, be sure to hit us up on social media at Nerd by Word on Twitter and Instagram. And then when we come back, we're going to hit you with two more nerd commendations. All right, we're back for our fan favorite final segment. All right, Dave, I first looked at this and saw the title. And thought I knew what you were talking about, but then I had to do a search, and it is not what I thought it was. Ha ha ha. I still surprise. So I have read um, some uh, Marvel stuff rather rigorously, and being a fan of the Captain Marvel movie, um, I have read all of the Captain Marvel comic books featuring Carol Danvers I could get a hold of. And as a big fan of uh, Kamala Khan, I've also read all of her Miss Marvel uh, comic books. And then I found myself kind of wanting more. And where do you go from there besides backwards? So I decided to punt back a series and follow uh, Carol Danvers when she was still Miss Marvel. I found uh, a series, uh, Miss Marvel. Uh, which ran for about 50 issues uh, on Marvel Unlimited, when was written by Brian Reed and featured uh, in the first story arc, uh, art from Roberto Della Torre. I will also say that there were several other artists involved in the series. I mean, it's 50 issues, um, and there was a lot of comings and goings. Um, and I have to say, I was kind of shocked that despite my initial um kind of negative reaction to some of the covers and stuff that I found an incredibly well-written, well-drawn, and well-crafted series. A very, very, very enjoyable romp through the pre-Captain Marvel days of Carol Danvers. Um, so, so let's get the problematic thing out of the way right away. I absolutely hate, with a red-hot glowing passion, the Miss Marvel outfit that Carol Danvers sports in this particular series. It, it looks, in short, like fetish wear. Um, it's also oftentimes not drawn very respectfully. Uh, it seems like some artists figured out that this outfit should cover her whole buttocks. And other artists decide to dry it like she has a, a bathing suit on that's giving her an extended wedgie. Um, either way, um, the outfit itself... Uh, I hate with a red hot glowing passion. And it took me a hot second to be able to look past that. And what I found here is is a really, really fun series. The basic hook of the series is that this uh, this series launched post House of M, that Carol got a glimpse of 
uh, an alternate version of herself. She feels like she's not been living up to her fullest potential. She believes she has the potential to be one of the all-time greats. Um, and she decides that she's going to put her nose to the grindstone and try to become uh, a better superhero. Um, what we get is a series that does an excellent job sort of uh, portraying who Carol is as a person, you know, tough, hard-nosed, takes no nonsense, um, also a little impulsive, uh, emotional, gets angry easy. You know, these sorts of character flaws are also on full display. And then uh, what I love most about this series probably is that it manages to weave in and out of a whole bunch of crossovers and the tie-ins to those crossovers never feel superfluous and in some cases feel better than the actual crossover, which I thought was really, really cool. Um, yeah, there was a whole bunch of stuff going on, obviously, with, you know, a civil war and the initiative and all that. And Miss Marvel was, you know, very involved in that. You know, she led the Mighty Avengers for a little while, which was like the the government-sanctioned Avengers team. And there's some allusion to that. But at the same time, you know, her own story is kind of going uh, in parallel to that and does a much, much better job of kind of getting inside of Carol's head through all of this. Uh, there are tie-ins here to uh, Secret Invasion, and her, I have to say that her tie-ins to Secret Invasion were, I think, better than, than Secret Invasion, actually. Um, there's just a really, really strong series here. None of the issues, even when they're tie-ins, feel uh, in any way, shape, or form um, superfluous or, or like treading water or anything. They continue to push Carol's story forward. Um, I was just really taken aback and impressed with how good the series is and how very little people seem to talk about it. Um, obviously, uh, you know, Kamala Khan has a huge fandom now. And when you type in Miss Marvel, you know, that's 90% of the hits you're going to get. But it turns out that that Carol had an incredibly good um, series of Miss Marvel stories before she became Captain Marvel. Um, so if you can look past the fetish wear outfit, this is an absolutely enjoyable series, Chris. Yeah, it's really interesting um, that you say that because I dare, <laughs> I'm looking at the first trade paperback right here and one of the artists listed, I had to unfollow on Instagram because like, no no shade, I'm not going to say who it is, but like, it, it, it was, it's very much evocative of that and it is not surprising um, because that's just not my particular taste of art, like this this googly eyed like male gazy type stuff. That's just that's exactly. Just, it's just not. It's just not for me. So um, unfortunately, that is not surprising. However, um, I find Carol to be a fascinating character, and her arc and her trajectory is really really interesting because um, you know she was created by by Roy Thomas and Jane Cullen way back in the day, but like. For me, she really came into her own and became kind of revitalized under Chris Claremont, um, you know, who is probably most famous for what his what he did in the X-Men. And so, like, my extensive, you know, experience with the character outside of the MCU is, you know, her team ups with the Uncanny X-Men in the 80s. And those are really, really fascinating and, and really, really great where she goes into the binary character and all that. And then, you know, to see her in uh, the modern area to, to be kind of like with the Captain Marvel thing, I kind of struggle with because it, it, it gives like this like mirror military industrialist type stuff. Um, you know, Civil War Two does not help with that. Thanks, Bendis. Um 
you know, so it's it's a really complex character, and and seeing the arc of her is really really interesting. And what's cool too is that this series alludes to that past with the X Men. She has, you know, she has interactions with with Beast, uh, with Mystique, um, and there are a lot of allusions also to her time as you know the binary uh, the binary moniker and what her powers were different back then. This is this series is steeped in uh, Miss Marvel history, I guess you could say. And that's one of the things I really liked about it. It makes me interested to go back and, you know, go back even further and read more of the character. All right, Chris, what are you nerd commending this week? I'm nerd commended a Marvel book and you are nerd commending a DC book. There's been a role reversal, man. Um, and, and this character almost made my list of favorite LGBTQ heroes, but I didn't want it to be recency bias, but I absolutely love him. Um, so I'm nerd commending Aquaman the Becoming on on the recommendation from my dear friend Hermes. They recommended uh, this character, this book, and all the subsequent titles to me. So shouts to Hermes. Love you, dear. Uh, written by Brandon Thomas, art by lots of different folks. Um, so we've got Skylar Patridge, Diego Orlutegui, um, Wade Von Graubadger, Alex Guimaraes, lots of different folks here. But uh, this is a six-issue miniseries that leads up to Aquaman, which I will be reading as soon as we finish recording here, um, and tells the story of Jackson Hyde, Aqualad, not to be confused with Calderon, who I also adore, So, um, who is a, a, a gay character and... Um, this was really fascinating, and I said it before several times in this episode already, is like being a person of two worlds um, and really struggling with um, a complicated family background, a complicated family history, and what that means for him, what his past, how that impacts his future and his present. Um, so um, he is really, you know, stepped up as as like the sidekick or successor for um arthur curry's aquaman um but he has this history as being a former citizen of sabelle i hope i'm saying that right um the same kingdom that mara comes from which i did some quick you know googling and it seems to be a separate kingdom that was reserved for the outcasts of atlantis does that sound right dave yes okay so um you know there's a lot of um unfortunately kind of stereotyping going on from the Atlantean perspective towards the citizens of Sabelle. You also have the Sabellian Liberation Front. There's a lot of, of course, real world allegories being painted there um, using, you know, uh, extreme methods for liberation and for equality. Um, so it, it's really, really interesting. And, you know, Jackson, long story short, has been framed for some terrorist attacks and bombings um, and really struggling with with um, being on the run and all of that. But just um, this character is really, really fascinating to me and um, one that I plan on following to a great degree into the current stuff. And so being, being uh, on the trajectory to catch up with another current DC character has me really, really proud, uh, pun fully intended. And I love Jackson. I love both Aqualads equally. And... Um, it's just there's there's something about the that the, the, both of those characters that is really really fascinating to me, 
um, and just bringing so much uniqueness into a character and their backstory. Uh, Brandon Thomas, the writing is absolutely spot on. Um, lots of great um, social commentary um, and lots of great, I'm, I'm a sucker for speeches. And uh, the way Brandon Thomas writes a grandstandy speech is spot on for me. Yeah, I have not read uh, any Jackson Hyde stuff, and that is a huge oversight. I think this is going to be the next thing I'm putting on my list as far as things I need to read. Um, I always thought that a lot of the Aquaman adjacent characters were sort of underrated, anyways. Uh, Aquaman himself was often underrated, so I'm 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 into jumping into this and getting to know this character, Chris. It's really interesting seeing too with the success of the Jason Momoa film. It seems that it, it indelibly has an effect on on these characters. Um, you know, you have Arthur, who is still predominantly depicted as white, blonde hair, and blue-eyed, but he has those tattoos that you'd have to point to Jason Momoa. Um, but I, I, oh, I neglected to say in the tease um, that it, you know, Jackson is his Jackson's father is indeed Black Manta, and so dealing with that complicated heritage and how that, how that plays out. Uh, there's a great last page tease that, that leads into Aquaman. So I'm, like I said, I'm dying to read this. I'm with you, man. All right. That wraps up another episode of the nerd by word podcast, but thank you so much for riding along with us and be sure to shout out your favorite LGBTQ characters on our, uh, social media pages, uh, at nerd by word on Twitter and Instagram. And if you like what you heard, be sure to find us on your favorite podcasting platform. Drop us a, a rating, a review, and of course, follow us, subscribe us so you never miss an episode. You can find us on pretty much any podcasting platform you can imagine. Up, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio. Uh, if it's out there, we're on it, including our very own website, nerdbyword.com. And again, next week's episode will be a homework episode. So if you're looking to read along with us, you can find uh, All-Star Superman on DC Universe Unlimited by Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely. Or you can uh, also read Al Ewing's uh, Guardians of the Galaxy on Marvel Unlimited as well. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.